Hello my friends, in this fascinating episode of The Natural High, I speak to Susan O'Connell about her remarkable life and how she went from being a Hollywood actor to an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. We talk about her life, what happens when we die, how we deal with anger, sadness, selfishness and other practical applications of Buddhism in the modern world. She's one of the most succinct, wise and authentic people I've had the pleasure of meeting. Every moment of this conversation felt profoundly enriching to me and I know you'll find similar value in this truly special conversation. You can go to her page, thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Buddhism to find out more and reach out to Susan. And a quick ask, if you like the show, I'd be delighted if you'd leave a short review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast. Finally, feel free to reach out to me directly at thenaturalhighclub at gmail.com. As ever, thank you for your support. And let me cast us off with the quote that Susan uses to sign off her emails. It's a quote by Anne Lamott and it reads, I have a lot of faith, but I'm also afraid a lot and have no real certainty about anything. I remembered something Father Tom had told me, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort and letting it be there until some light returns. <sighs> the natural high. So yeah, I just wanted to ask how you found your path in Buddhism or what came before that? Well, when I was younger, uh, I stumbled into a career as a, an actress on um, television and in film. Uh, I was based in Hollywood and New York, did a soap opera for a bit in New York, and then I gradually uh, took the more control over that part of my life and became a film producer, set up a company in San Francisco with offices in LA and um, produced independent feature films for many years with some partners. Wow. And. Um, and things were things were fine. They were up and down. I remember, I remember one of the first things I learned about about Buddhism, and I learned this when I moved into the Zen Center. But I used to equate happiness and excitement. And the film business is very exciting. Lots of travel and film festivals and Cannes and Telluride and stuff. But when I got to the Zen Center. I realized that happiness and peace are the same thing. And wow. it was a very important shift in my life. But what got me into the Zen Center was um, I had an 18-month period of time in which I had loss in every sector of my life. So my mother died. My son moved away from home to get married. The man that I was seeing, it was clear it wasn't going to be along. We weren't going to be able to take it to the next step with each other. Um, my, I had to shut my company down because of a partnership problem right when I was going to grow it into a film fund. Uh, my dad decided to remarry within six months after my mom died. And on the way to his wedding, I found out I had breast cancer. So I... Uh, I went, okay, that's got my attention. And I decided 
because I'd had to shut my company down, that what I needed to do was to start fresh. And so I gave everything away. I let go of my apartment in the city, rent-controlled apartment on Russian Hill, and I moved into the Zen Center, I thought, for two months. And I was flying back and forth to Manhattan, interviewing to be an agent at a big theatrical agency to package independent movies. And I'd go back and forth and back and forth. And one day when I was back at the Zen Center, I, I felt my diaphragm kind of kicking up and I didn't know what was going on. And what was happening is I was starting to sob. The grief of all that loss, it had been because I had slowed down enough and not tried to outrun it. Although that was kind of my plan was to outrun it. I was gonna to go to Manhattan, but I was at the Zen Center and I was meditating and I was supported. I finally felt the grief and it, I rolled up in a ball on the floor, people walked around me, and I was able to, over a few months, really allow the grief to process itself. And then I could look around, and I did, and I said, oh, I just got myself where I need to be for the rest of my life. And I was 50, 50 years old when I, when I made that transition. It was kind of the, the third turning of my life. So first I was an actress and then I was a film producer and then, oh, now I'm a Zen priest for ordination. You have to spend months, a couple years in deep meditation at our monastery, which is called Tassajara and it's in the Ventana wilderness. So, so I did that and that's what I've been doing for 25 years. It's amazing. And I'm sure you probably feel so much more fulfilled as a consequence it's a different level of fulfillment. I had a very, very fulfilling life doing independent movies and with fabulous people. And I feel really, really good about that. But um, this includes, people say, how do you, you know, make that transition? What I'm doing now includes everything that was part of my independent film life and everything else. There's nothing left out of this practice. So, you know, it can go on forever. There's no end. Uh, after all of your years of rumination and research and educating yourself, do you still, do you, have you still come to the conclusion that happiness and peace are the same thing? Oh, absolutely. I love that. I think that's wonderful. What does Buddhism mean to you today then? Well, in my life, it's been a turning towards caring for people more than I care for myself. It's like exploring that edge because as a, as a filmmaker, I was really clear I was doing helpful things. I was creating, you know, very uh, interesting, provocative, you know, innovative films that would be helpful to people. But my attitude was just move out of my way, everybody. I'm going to go do this thing. Don't get, and it'll be good for you. Trust me, you know, I'm the artist, I'm gonna do this thing. As opposed to actually being much more aware of the people in the process and, and sharing the process with them and not being so egotistical. Uh, even though I think what I was doing was very wholesome and helpful, still the way I was doing it. So that, that evolution, and it's a slow process to unlearn selfishness. 
but I think that's a that's a basic basic teaching of Buddhism is how do you how do you realize we're all in this together, and then act from that place. So, that's one answer. It's so central to everything that I wanted to ask you. Really, do you think it's a natural human impulse to be selfish? Is that is that part of our nature? And you said you've had to unlearn it. Is that something that is that nurture? Is that nature selfishness? I think it's part of our nature, and it comes from. I mean, selfish is a is a strong word. So you know, and it. But I think being self protective is is basically what when when the Buddha, who was an actual person, sat down to look at what's the cause of our suffering, he saw that it was holding on to this kind of separate ego, holding on to it and protecting it and and sort of pushing others away because you can't actually hold on to it because it's not permanent. It's not solid. The self is not a solid thing. But because of language, we need for there to be something that we can call myself or call or, or to be able to, you know, this is my pen. So I have to set this out there as a separate thing so that I can own it. And you can't. And that whole survival system, you know, of dominance and, and having, and not, I mean, there is a, a benefit to sharing, which is also part of our civilized life, but it, it starts with a lot of selfishness and that's what has to be studied and potentially softened, if not completely undone. Wow, yeah, I mean, for me, greed and materialism, it's the sort of biggest issue facing humanity in the world today, that sort of desire for materials, we think more than we need, excess amounts of stuff, and we think that it will sate us. We're in that cycle of believing that will make us happy, and even though materials don't make us happy, as is proven time and again when we do buy stuff, uh, we still, we're still in that cycle, um, and it doesn't bring happiness. Um, it seems to be a cycle of individualism, that dissolution of community and putting ourselves first. And for me, Buddhism, even though I am pretty naive to it at this point, it does seem to provide a specific antidote to that. But the world is seemingly on an um, unstoppable trend towards this dystopian future. How do we change that mindset on a grand scale? I know it's a huge question, but how do we make each other and our beautiful planet the priority? Well, when one experiences community, and I think more because of COVID, we've been forced to be more aware of our effect on others. And um, just even walking down the street, the way we are relating to, we're being careful with each other right now. We're aware of each other. I've lived in a community now for 25 years that shares resources, that lives lightly on the land. And th there are benefits for doing things together. You can, you can live on less if you live together, or at least if, if you're not connected like side by side, you're in a neighborhood or you're in a bio you know, region. 
where you're aware of the effect of your having more and someone else having less. So just opening our eyes more to what's directly in front of us um, can be helpful. And we've been, we've been forced to do that all over the world. What percentage of that will, will remain in people's consciousness and experience and become a part of, of someone's vow of how to, how to live this life? There will be more people. How many will it take to change the trajectory of selfishness? I don't know. Are you optimistic about the future? I think optimism and pessimism are both traps. And I think what I am is I, I am prepared to meet the future, whatever it is. I don't need the future to be some particular way for me to work on how to meet it. So my job is how to meet whatever arises, difficult, easy, pleasurable, painful. How do I meet it is my practice. Wow, that's wonderful. I definitely want to delve more into that later. Um, does Buddhism provide a formula for your whole life? Do you live it? Do you have to live it completely? Is it in every aspect and every decision that you make, or is it something which complements your life? A sort of uh, a reference handbook um, for when you need it. One could think about Buddhism as a thing, but mostly it's a practice. So do, can we practice all the time? And the answer is yes. So the, the awareness that happens and the, the patience that gets developed and the, um, the kind of kindness that's necessary when we sit still in meditation, there's so much that can be learned in that process of being with our mind and meeting what arises, being with our bodies and our minds and not turning away. So the process of meditation trains us and hopefully, you know, I, I remember I was at the monastery for my first three month practice period because we stay for three months and take like two week break and then we go back for three months. And I was, I was lifting my foot to walk up to the meditation hall. And I had heard this several times, but all of a sudden it hit me. And the statement was, oh, you mean practicing all the time? Like, no vacations. You don't take a vacation from being present. You know, from being committed to being present. Yeah, we... we go into reverie and all kinds of, you know, regret and all those other things all the time. But we, we can develop a, a, a presence, a, a, an ability to be more and more and more present in every activity. But you get trained on the meditation cushion. So Buddhism as a study, as, a, as an intellectual understanding is helpful for, for being able to sit still, having deep, deep understanding of what's actually going on when we, when we have to be with ourselves. But the practice is, can be constant. 
I always comment that the people that feel they're too busy for meditation are the ones that need it most. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's very helpful. How important is meditation to you? How central is it to your life? How does it affect you? And how do you practice it? Well, I am an ordained Zen priest. And so uh, meditation is kind of my thing, right? Uh, it's what we it's what we teach. It's what we offer. It's the it's the center of our practice. Um, there are other things we do too. We we live together. We give each other feedback. We have two student teacher relationships. We study, but meditation is at the ground of of all of that. Um, how do I practice? Uh, well. I have the support of community to have a daily practice. So, um, of course, we're doing it online right now. And um, I sit down and I settle and find a balanced position. And then I Zen practice you can use some tools when you meditate, like counting your breath, like being aware of your breath or being aware of whether your posture is upright. And you, those are tools. But actual Zen meditation, I refer to it as radical not doing. So you actually don't do anything, which is almost impossible, right? But, but allowing allowing what comes up to come up and not feeding it or not pushing it away. Working with the arisings of the body and mind because when we get up from meditation, those thoughts and body sensations are all there. So we need to be able to be, it isn't about having no thought. That's a misnomer about meditation. There are forms of meditation where you can actually stop the thinking process. And it's like a little vacation. It's hard work to do it, you can do it, but it's like a vacation from your actual life. We wanna practice for our actual life. So we have to work with thoughts and sensations. How do we work with them without getting over-involved and without pushing them away? That's, that's the Yeah. The the ultimate balance and it's such a, a difficult question to find the answer to how would i go about starting to practice uh, buddhism i've done quite a bit of meditation in my life but it seems to me again i've just scratched the surface but unlike you know the bible and the quran there doesn't seem to be like a general consensus among the different buddhist traditions as to what constitutes the the central scripture i suppose so but it would be a crime for me not to ask you what your great reference points have been in your life in terms of where I might start to learn. So I, I don't think it's true that there aren't basic scriptures and teachings. There are the early, the Pali Canon, which was, is a, a set of um, lectures by the Buddha that was um, you know, from oral transmission they were starting to be written down, I think, a couple hundred years after his death. So they were maintained by the, his disciples orally, and then these teachings were written down. So there's the Pali Canon. Okay. And then there are other sutras that evolved over time as Buddhism, I would say, 
expanded in various ways and took in slightly different different ideas and then um, also integrated with whatever country it was in. So the Tibetan Buddhism has has an element of the Bon religion in it and Japanese Buddhism has kind of tendition to, you know, there's some integration of what was going on locally. China had Taoism and Confucianism integrated into, into Chan or Zen. So there are iterations, but the, the Buddha taught what's called the Four Noble Truths. So if you, if you want to study Buddhism, you want to understand what those are, and then there's all kinds of ways to do that, to open that up. Um, so there are Zen texts. Um, a lot of the things we read and look at are from the golden age of Zen in China. And those are the koan stories. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping and those, those kind of stories between teacher and disciple. And there are, there was a very important Zen priest, teacher, scholar, uh, who lived about 800 years ago in Japan named Dogen, Dogen Zenji. And he was very prolific and very poetic and pretty, I would say, woken up and did a pretty good job of describing something that's almost impossible to describe. So there are a lot of um, teachings from Dogen that we study because he's sort of in the lineage of, of Soto Zen, which we are. So yeah, those are some things to study. How you would, you know, do you need to become a Buddhist is what I would say to you. You know, if you have a meditation practice, the reason to turn towards a greater understanding of Buddhism is if your meditation practice isn't working for you okay. and, you, and you need to refine it in some way. And then for that, you need a teacher. You need somebody to talk with so that you're not deluding yourself about your understanding. Um, most people come to Zen because they're suffering and they've tried everything and nothing works. So they want to go deeper into understanding the causes of suffering. And, and you, you have, like I said, you have the teachings, you have a teacher, and then you have the community of practitioners to support you. And that's what Buddhism is. The Buddha, the Dharma, or the teachings, and the Sangha, or the community of practitioners. Right. I think for me, meditation makes me feel less impulsive. So I don't react as quickly to, I don't have negative, I'm more aware of negative emotions, I suppose. But this brings me on to um, the practical applications I was talking about. So I, I have a great life. I feel like a very happy person in general. I'm healthy, touch wood. I don't have any money worries. I've got a truly amazing wife and I'm about to have my first child. I'm so, so I feel so fortunate and I really appreciate my life. Um, but I, I still have moments of anger and um, it would typically happen in relation to my family, for example, you know, um, uh, they might, they might uh, tell, say something negative to me, which I react to in a hypersensitive way. And that sort of res resentment can stay with me. And I have that sort of ongoing internal dialogue, which can feel really unhealthy and destructive and it can last for days. And I know this is an area in which I can improve. So I was 
wondering whether you might be able to give me and you know my audience because I'm sure they have similar feelings some guidance on this do you feel that every emotion including anger resentment etc all necessary emotions for us to have in order to grow and manage our lives better or should I be trying to get rid of the anger and get rid of these negative emotions and if so sort of how, how would I do that what's your perspective what's the Buddhist perspective on that so I'm going to step back a little bit and respond, not in a, in a direct way, but I'll get there. Um, Great. When we talk about Buddhism, or let's say Zen, which I'm more familiar with, we have this meditation practice and this study of the cause of suffering. We also have a study of ethical conduct. And it, it turns out that it's really necessary to understand what your values are if you're going to be upright when you sit. So sitting, meditation is kind of neutral. It isn't necessarily warm-hearted, let's say. It's just like a, a practice of being with something. If you don't add... A, a study or an understanding of what your own values are, you can be lost and you can use the skills you develop in meditation in a maybe not so wholesome way for like control or something. So All right. Zen has something called the Bodhisattva vow. And also it's in Tibetan Buddhism and other types of Buddhism. And it has to do with, really committing to benefit all beings, like to help everybody. So we set up a process where you can take a look at a bunch of statements that are called precepts. And you can say, and the thing I like is you get to do this as a grown-up because we're given values when we're children, we're given a set of values or maybe commandments or something from our growing up. And we don't usually look at them again. They kind of go underground, right? Mm. As a grown-up, you can say, huh, what's killing? Am I going to, you know, how do I kill? How do I not kill? Do I care? You know, what's stealing? What's, and in Buddhism, there's some different ones than there are in Christian uh, kind of commandments. It's like, don't praise yourself at the expense of someone else. What's that all about? And they're not put forward as commandments. They're put forward as guidelines. Study this because you're going to make mistakes. But you have to know what your basic value is to know if you've made a mistake or not. Right. So the whole, the whole study of ethical conduct, in the case of anger, to get back to that, what's your commitment? What's your vow? What kind of a person do you want to be? And when you're clear about that and anger comes up, you can determine whether that is beneficial anger, which can happen, takes a lot of skill, but it can happen, or whether it's not beneficial right. for the kind of life you want to lead, for the kind of father you want to be for your child, for the kind of husband you want to be for your wife. So that, that's what we need to clarify is, what kind of a person do I want to be? And then work with 
what comes up. Greed, hate, delusion, anger, all that stuff is going to come up. We're human. But can there be that space that you're talking about, that little bit of hesitation between it arising and you doing something about it? Mm. Right. Yeah. So if I've got a stronger framework of my own ideologies, then I can I can sort of figure out a little bit better. So yeah, to analyze the anger a little bit better and work out where the point of it, where it's going, and what I need to do with it. Right. And and as you continue to make mistakes, which you will, we all do. <laughs> you get the feedback. It's like, oh yeah, that didn't feel right after I did it. Sometimes we don't know until after we did it that it wasn't beneficial. Sometimes we never know, but sometimes we get pretty fast feedback and, and we learn. You know? Yeah. A lot of the time I just find I, I stand back a little bit and I just appreciate everything around me. I forcefully appreciate everything around me and realize how trivial that emotion is. But I just wondered whether you believe that it's an important emotion or it's something we should try and squash. We can't succeed in squashing what comes up as a response to both the world and our conditions. All right. So stuff comes up because of untold number of conditions in your life. It comes up. If we kill it, we're killing, you know, if we squelch it and also we can't keep it down that well, it'll come back. And sometimes it'll come back stronger. All right. So so we need to be kind to our humanness. We're not trying to be saints. We're trying to understand human life, our human life, and have some compassion for how hard it is. It's very hard to be a human being, to be a good human being. Mm. And I suppose it also, it's got a lot to do with that, the sense of the ego, the sense of the self. You know, why am I angry? I'm angry because my pride has been hurt in some way. Which is, which is a, a selfish, a selfish feeling. Which, if you can break it down and look at it from that perspective, then things become much clearer. Another one. It might be a bit of a Venn diagram. This, but this is another practical application that I wanted to discuss with you. Sadness. Um, the treatment of animals in the modern industrialized world. It's. I find it absolutely awful. And the abuse of animals for food is what makes me most sad. I often wake up in the night after dreaming or thinking about it and it, and it really crushes me. Um, I wanted to know what your perspective on this is because and how do I find peace with this? And should I look to find peace with this notion, knowing that, you know, whatever I do in order to try and shape the world in a better way, shape the world to my will, that people will always eat animals in my lifetime and probably not always in a humane way. They will use animal products. They won't always be humane. So how can I move forward with this? So I feel a bit more at peace. So there's several parts in there. Um, sadness is to be appreciated and allowed. It's, a, it's almost like grieving it kind of cleans out the pipes. You know, it, <laughs> Definitely. It, it, really, it really is, it's, it's life wanting to live itself. It's so cathartic at times, right? 
right. Grief is, is the arising. Life is like saying, you're holding me down. Let's grieve and kind of flush the pipes out so that, so that you can have a kind of a more fresh start, right? Without the weight of the grief. So grieving is fantastic. The other part though about it's always going to be X, Y, or Z, you know, like you were saying, well, people are always going to kill animals and I can't Getting involved in absolutes is not helpful. And, and the question is, what's the most helpful response you could have? So you go back to your vow. Your vow is I want to help everybody. So what's the most helpful response in the light of this? What's going to keep me from being overwhelmed by the thought of this cruelty? Is it some action? Is it making a donation? Is it being grateful for the food in front? What is going to help you be beneficial? And it probably isn't letting the thought come and, and, and developing the thought of it's always going to be this way and it's really terrible. It's meeting what's going on right now, which, you know, in a way, like impossible burger. I mean, come on. A few years ago, there was no impossible burger, zero. Yep. And now they're trying to figure out how to make fish, right? So right. Uh, something has actually shifted. And not to get over-optimistic, because that will make us blind to maybe what we could do to make it better. But if we get overwhelmed, we're not helping anybody. Such a great answer. Such a great answer. Yeah, there are actionable differences that you can make. Right. And they can be tiny, 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 tiny. They don't have to be grand. If you make it, if you make it too grand, you'll always fail. Hmm. And those different, those small changes can make you feel happier as well by degrees, right? Yeah. Um, great answer. What do you believe happens when you die? I mean, do you subscribe to the sort of Buddhist idea that, you know, are, that your lives, plural, are sort of recurring cycle of, of suffering until you build up enough credits to reach nirvana? So in the early Buddhist days, that way of thinking was really integrated into what Buddhism was because the whole idea of reincarnation, of, of, of gaining merit so that you could have better and better lives and then eventually not come back right? That was like an early thought that fit in with the zeitgeist of the time, hmm. the understanding of the time. Buddhism evolved so that the, the point isn't that I get to get out of here. The point is that I'm going to stay until you and everyone else are happy. So I'm not trying to get off the wheel. Now, the Buddha refused several times to answer that question that you just asked me. He basically said, the problem is right now <laughs> in this right. life. So let's work on this. Let's work on this. And, you know, I've had conversations with my teacher and there are some very elaborate ways to understand what is it that might or might not be a continuum of life without it being personal 
and how that would work and what is life and, and there are ways to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I am pretty comfortable with, um, so th this just occurred to me this morning. I have an altar in my, in my bedroom that has three different scarfs over it. One I got from when I was in Mongolia, one I got from a friend who's a Tibetan practitioner. And the third one is a scarf that a friend of mine named Dick Catalano gave me before he died, maybe 20 years ago, and it's on my altar. And I'm thinking about moving to this senior community that I'm developing, a Zen-inspired senior community I'm developing. And what would I let go of? I had that thought this morning. And I thought, yeah, I guess I wouldn't need to take all three scarves. I guess I could let go of Dick's. And then I thought, okay, so that part of Dick that's been in my heart and mind is fading. And that's what it's going to be like when people remember me after I die. There's going to be parts of me in them that will fade until there's no longer a conscious relationship to me. But there might be historical ones and my name might be, you know, on the web for a while and all of that. What, what's important about my life is how it lives in others, how my, my efforts live in others and how that does or doesn't cause love to happen, right? After that, it's not really my concern. Yeah. It's, but it feels like you tr that truly is your motivation in life. That truly motivates you. But how do we make others feel motivated by that same sense? You know, I talked about the suffering of the self, but what you're talking about is trying to extinguish the suffering of others through your life. That's your main purpose. Um, I'm just trying to sort of find a way, sort of make that, that, that leap so that we can, we can multiply that feeling amongst people. Well, how do, you, how do you do it? Yeah, I know that um, for me, selflessness, it feels almost selfish because I always feel good when I do something nice for somebody else. And I always, that's how I sell it to other people. It sells a bit of a crude way of putting it. But yeah, when I do something nice for somebody else, I, that's when I feel at my best. I feel so good. All we can do is manifest it ourselves. And people will either get it or they won't. Um, you can't force someone to wake up. You can um, keep embodying it. Keep offering whatever offering you're making. Keep making your offering. And, you know, when we look around, I have a friend who's a quite knowledgeable person. And he says, you know, there are less wars right now. There is less violence in the world than ever. We don't hear that because it's more dramatic to hear about all the stuff that's going wrong. What if it were actually true that more people are aware of the benefits of connection and doing things together and for each other than ever before? That could actually be true. And which would be a cause for relaxing about this, right? And a relaxed attitude is a much more compelling and interesting attitude for others to meet than me trying to make you happy.
<laughs> so you're so beautifully succinct and it's I, I feel so reassured with every every line that you utter um what are your thoughts on covid it's been a shocking time for us this year 2020 do you think that we will learn from this as a human race will we change our way of living or do you think that we'll just um ultimately just go back to the default way of living I think this has been so dramatic and lasted long enough. I just know my own personal relationship to it has um, caused me to really consider, you know, like the question I held from the very beginning is what is it that would be most beneficial for me to, to be studying now that would be the most helpful for, for the world when we shift out of this. So I've been studying balance. I've been looking at where I'm not balanced, where I have preferences, and I've been using this time because we have some time, although I've been extremely busy, but still there is a, less time in, you know, transporting ourselves from place to place. And so I know I'm asking those questions. And I know that the number of people that come to the Zen Center website for online meditation and talks and everything is tripled. Wow. So, so you know, something, something is happening. Will, will it make a big enough shift? I have no idea, but it doesn't change how I'm working with my own questions. Mm -hmm. It does feel as if there is more existential rumination happening right now. As you say, we've got more time to think about where we're at, the crossroads we're at in humanity. What's the most transformative or one of the more transformative books that you've read? I saw that on your list of questions and I immediately shifted from books to movies in my mind. Okay, great. And, and what came up for me is it's the moment in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color that moment and something about i mean i we saw it when i was a kid it was on television through the holidays all the time and so you watched it every year and something about i that's where i wanted to live my life where it goes from black and white to color that that's it that's the place right there <laughs> so um so that i think it was probably the most influential movie or book because it it came when i was young and it informed many many things about my life there are you know zen books of course oh, i i would say also um jd salinger's um collection of short stories which in franny and zoe and and um that kind of possibility of a spiritual life that was in there the Jesus prayer and all of that was like, whoa, what is this? And, and uh, it was very influential in my life. So those are two. Amazing. And are these short stories fables of sorts, would you say? It's, J.D. Sanjos? He, he wrote about the Glass family, which was a family of eccentric intellectuals and um, how, they, how they worked together and... Um, what they cared about and how they expressed it was was so eye-opening for me. I hadn't met people like that. And I, again, I wanted to. Now I, now I know they exist. 
those are the people I want to get to know better. All right. Yeah. It's always about the way with great artists, the way that it's framed can make it very alluring. I'm a big fan of Tara Brock. I don't know if you, if you are aware of her work, I'm sure you are. And um, she, she does great podcasts and um, she talks about spiritualism and she, the way she frames things, the way she describes her, the fables that she wants to present is done with comedy. It's done um, with tongue in cheek at times. And it's just, just absolutely wonderful. Very accessible. Yeah. Definitely. Um, what is the strangest thing you've ever seen? I love asking this question because they're just, it seems to be sort of boundless. There are no bounds to what you could answer. Well, I, I'm looking out, I'm on the second floor of my building, I'm looking out on the street, and I have been often now seeing homeless people in a state of, of mental anguish. Uh, I saw someone yesterday, he had a, a plastic soda pop bottle in his hand, and he was walking across the street, banging it against his head, and then banging it on the gates and banging on his head and banging it on the gates. And, you know, it's like, well, what is that? What is that disturbance that, that, that he, he's responding to in that way? And, and the other day I saw uh, um, there was another two people sitting across the street from this same perch where I sit. And one young man was clearly sky high on speed of some kind and running back and forth and talking as fast as I've ever heard anybody talk. And it went on for 15 minutes. And the other person was just with him. And I don't know what she was doing. And then when she stood up, they walked down the street. This was this relationship around whatever that was. And he was fulfilling a certain kind of, he had to be that way to be alive, I guess. So those are the, those are the things that hit me as strange. I don't I, understand. Yeah. I've, I've spent time in India and Indonesia, supposedly, you know, developing countries. And I've never seen the poverty that I've witnessed since I moved to America and to California. And I find it, such a bizarre and sad paradox because this is supposedly you know the richest country in the world yet you've got abject poverty everywhere you look on the streets of san francisco and it just it that, that's that is the problem in microcosm isn't it it's right there so many people have excess but so many people are living in poverty well it's the attitude that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps this is the american way and it doesn't take into account slavery, and it doesn't take into account mental illness, and it doesn't take into account physical disabilities. It, it, doesn't, it isn't very kind. But on the other hand, we have all these nonprofits, right, for which people throw money at. That, that's how we try to handle the fact that our system isn't kind. Wow. Yeah. I, I love your outlook. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't want to sort of crudely identify you as being somebody with the glass half full, but you, 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 I find your tones just reassuring and you will look for a solution. You'll look for something to make things better by degrees rather than looking for an overall answer, necessarily an absolute answer. What yeah. can you do? What can you do to make things that bit better? Right. And the one thing you can do that helps everything you do is 
accept what's right in front of you. It doesn't mean you like it, but if you try to reject it too quickly, you don't actually see it. And then you can't generate an appropriate response. That, that's when, when people, um, there's a famous koan, Zen koan, where someone asks um, a teacher, what was the point of the Buddha's whole life? And the teacher says, an appropriate response. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to think more about that one. <laughs> um, but you say we need to accept you know, abject poverty in front of us, for example, is becoming desensitized to it, accepting it, or is it, is that rejecting it? Because so many people do seem to get used to the fact that, you know, from within the inner sanctum of their comfy coffee shop, they can look at somebody pushing a trolley, a homeless guy pushing a trolley outside, and they just carry on tapping away in their, on their laptop. I'm, I'm a culprit just as much as anybody else. But I, we seem to become desensitized to it over time. I think the, the issue is the word accept, which has various connotations of like saying it's okay. What, what I'm talking about is receiving what's there, seeing what's there. And then from that place, also being lined up with your own values about what's right and what's wrong, responding. So it's not a passive, just I'm, I accept this. It's it's not pushing it away, or not trying to change it into something it isn't. That's that's killing in a way. That's that's breaching the the precept of you know not killing. If you if you try to make something different from what it actually is, and so we need to see it with clear eyes, and then respond. Hmm. You are the spiritual director of the senior living, the Zen Senior Living Project in San Francisco. Can you tell me a bit about that, what you're aiming to create? Yeah, it's been a, an amazing a joy for me to uh, be a part of this. Um, it, it started with that, the fact that here comes a street sweeper. Um, Sounds like it's going to sweep you up. <laughs> So the San Francisco Zen Center has a lot of teachers in residence and we promised retirement to people who've been here 20 years or more. Wow. But we didn't have, we don't have enough. No one counted the beds. Like how many beds would it take to take care of that founding generation? And so I, I had this idea that if we ensconced our teachers into a larger community, then we could bring our experience of living together, we could bring Zen practice to the community, and we could then have Zen-inspired senior living. So out of that seed of an idea has come an actual project where we have property in Healdsburg, we're going to have 221 units of independent living, 30 assisted care 24 memory care it's got a meditation hall in the main courtyard it's got an organic farm on it it's got a wow pool it's got you know a big community room for dharma talks and it's got two restaurants one of which is a kind of full service whatever kind of food and the other is a bistro that's strictly vegetarian which 
has not been done in senior living before. So we're, we're doing things that have never been done in senior living. And the, the response, we, we opened it up for people to be able to put 10% down because we need to get a certain number of people before we can raise, get the money to build. Mm -hmm. And within eight weeks, we are 90% filled. Fantastic. It just hit this need that people want, you know, that baby boomers want. And I think the next generation too, who are interested in meditation and mindfulness, et cetera. This is, this is about not turning away from our aging, from our dying and doing it together and living lightly on the land and supporting each other and all of that. So it's going very, very well. And I, we have partners on the East Coast that are Quaker based. So they come with their Quaker values and they've been doing it for 50 years and they have 13 communities. And so they have the experience and we bring the Zen. And so our, yeah, 20 of our teachers will be living there in the community. I can understand why it's been so popular because it sounds really enlivening, an enlivening senior living project. I wonder how senior you have to be to get involved because, you know, is there room for me? <laughs> 62, 62 is the Wow, answer. Yeah. wow. And Healdsburg, that's near Guerneville, right? It's north of Santa Rosa. It, right, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it's, Guerneville is closer to the ocean, but, um, it's right off of Highway 101, and we have 15 acres, and yeah, we're, we, we hope to start building in the spring. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, it sounds really exciting. How can people connect to what you guys are doing? I mean, it sounds like you're doing quite a lot of online stuff at the moment. Are you doing any face-to-face -face stuff outside, or is it purely virtual at this point in time? We, we have to still be quite virtual. So the San Francisco Zen Center has, you know, online meditation, practice periods, classes, workshops, talks, um, and that's accessible through, you know, sfcc.org. Right. Um, and so Village, which is the name of the senior community, also is accessible information about it anyway through enso.kendall.org. And because the Zen Center is, is a residential community, we're like congregate housing. So we okay. have to be very careful. We can't just invite people into our temple because we live there. Of course. And so Green Gulch is very, very locked down. If, People leave Green Gulch when they come back, they have to quarantine for two weeks. And wow. we have five buildings in the city, and the main building is pretty much, I'm not allowed in, because I actually come and go a little bit more. It's, so we're very locked down, and it'll probably not be till maybe next summer before we can even open up our, our monastery for the wider public. So we're doing a lot online right now. I ask partly selfishly because I would genuinely love to meet you in the, in person. Well, we could have, I have, you know, sat outside. I do okay. take walks with my dog on the weekends and we go over to Hay street and, and, you know, sit outside at, at Sulva or, you know, something like that and, and, um, have a, a meal. So we, we could do that. Um, 
That'd so, be amazing. Socially distanced with masks, yeah. I've been, I've been meaning to do a podcast about dogs because they're another of the great joys of life, aren't they? And I'm so, I'm so proud of my dog for not barking during this chat. Mine too. I, I, he must be a, oh, you know what? While we were talking, the dog walker came. So, so uh, that's why he's been quiet. I was surprised he didn't bark then, yeah. Um, what type of dogs do you have? A Cocker Spaniel. Oh my goodness. They bring me, they make me belly laugh every day, dogs. I am, I'm the biggest fan of dogs in the world. And, you know, people look at them, some people perceive them as, you know, just being small brained creatures, but we have so much to learn from dogs in terms of the simplicity and joy with which they live their lives. Well, plus my community right now, since I, you know, my Zen community, I'm actually much more in touch with virtually, but my dog people community is very active because you've got to go out in the city, right? I don't know sure. backyard. So I know at least 15 people. Of course, I don't know their names. I only know their dogs' names. But my guy and I go out, and I have always, I'm the treat lady, so I, I always <laughs> have treats in my pocket. So all the dogs come running up to me, and it's a very sweet community where we help each other. And, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Dog owners are definitely the best people, as far as I'm concerned. And maybe that's what we could do. Maybe we could go to Golden Gate Park and have a socially distanced walk with our dogs. Could be. Could be. It's been such an amazing chat. And I really mean this when I say you have the most amazing, positive vibe. You're such a lovely person. <laughs> I feel a bit teary. <laughs> but you really are. You're a wonderful, wonderful person. It's been such a pleasure. I will be in touch very soon. And again, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Take care. <sighs> the natural high. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club. <laughs>